48-hour art check. Best of podcast. We go live Monday, Wednesday, Friday on YouTube. 9 p.m. California time, and you can join us there live in the chats or watch them later. You can always check things out at coreykerr.com slash 48HR. We take the best conversations from those live streams and rip them and put them into this podcast. Today's topic is cliche versus original. And so uh, on the last episode, we talked about uh, semiotics, which is the symbol system that can come about because of, um, you know, like everybody in the culture deciding that something means something visually. Um, And there's a there's a danger in uh, defaulting to those when you don't think about it and that becoming trite or cliche or overused. Um, but there's also a danger on the on the other side of that, where if you don't uh, communicate clearly, nobody has any idea what you're talking about. Yeah. And so I'm I'm curious as you do this, Josh, because um, you've been in this game longer than I have. Um, how do you decide when to use a symbol, um, you know, and when to avoid it? Uh, how do you decide when you are being uh, cliche or you know, or original, you know, and, and how much originality do you think can water something down to the point where it's just unintelligible? I'm, I'm curious about that. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a, it's, it's funny because it's a, a really complicated topic just to even get into originality versus cliche, because there's an argument to be made in a pretty strong one that there really is nothing original. <laughs> right. Um, there's there's that old saying of like pretty much like um, th- there's no story that can't be boiled down to one of um, Shakespeare's plays like he pretty much hit all genres yeah and uh, and and that's relatively true so originality tends to have a lot to do with the voice um, that's that's telling a story um, and then also in the way that it's ordered or told. Um, and so like if you think of it as like uh, there are only so many chords or notes um, it's just really the arrangement of the notes that kind of makes the originality of the piece Um, unless you've invented a completely new instrument and in that case um, you know you're you're at that luxurious point where pretty much anything you do is going to be pretty original Um, I for me, I find it really interesting because, like, when I was doing T-shirts, this was particularly problematic um, because a lot of the time, what you're doing with graphic design and in cartooning is you are trying to convey an idea very quickly and visually, and usually your first thought when you're thinking about a visual solution is the most obvious and um, and usually the most cliche. Yeah. Um, and so there's this sweet spot when you're concepting or trying to come up with a successful concept for a shirt where um, where you kind of like think of something and it's so good that you assume somebody must have done it yeah. and you look and no one has. Yeah. Um, and that's this beautiful moment that I used to chase when, I, when that was the primary way I'd make money because if I could touch on one of those things – Nine times out of ten, that would make me a lot of money. Yeah. Um, uh, it, the the thing that I think the thing that I would recommend, and and 
you'll notice like I'm kind of dancing around the topic because I don't have a, a, a definite answer on it. Right. But, uh, but I would say one solution to avoiding cliches is to stop yourself at the first, like try to think beyond the first solution. And, and I, I tell my students, um, and this isn't my original idea. I think I stole it from somewhere. Uh, your first idea is crap. You know, and, and it's not that it's a bad idea. It's just that it is so likely to be the same idea as so many other people that it will be it, it'll be cliche because uh, you didn't work very hard to get there. I think our brains um, la- lazy is the wrong word. Uh, efficient is probably the right word. Um, but our, our, our brains and our muscles, you know, like your heart and everything, um, your heart is going to be as strong as it needs to be. And yeah. no, and no stronger, right? And the only way to strengthen your heart is to increase the amount of stress that you put on your heart through exercise and things like that. And then it's going to say, okay, now this is the new normal, so I'll beat that hard, you know. And your brain is the same way. If if you never push your brain past the initial idea, um, it will never give you anything other than the cliche, right? Yeah. But if you, but the interesting thing is, I think that that cliche is a step in the right direction. It's just not going far enough. And so when I'm, when I'm teaching kind of concepting design thinking methodologies, um, you know, creative, creative concepting that, you know, all the mind maps and blackout poetry and all that stuff that you do to try to get, get somewhere. That first idea isn't, isn't a bad idea. It's just the same idea that everybody else, everybody else is going to have, but that doesn't mean there isn't something to it. And so go in that direction, but go way past it. And at some point in time, you're going to go a step or two too far where you just, it's just nonsense. And yeah. if you pull back from the nonsense, right on the edge of the nonsense, way past that cliche, but on the same road is usually a good idea. That's usually yeah. where, that's usually where most people find it is right on the edge of nonsense, but way past the cliche. And so, yeah. If every and if everybody looks at it and is like, "Oh man, I wish I would have thought of that," because they get it really fast, that means it's communicating clearly, but um, it's it's unique enough that that is enviable. You know, people are people are envious of it or jealous of it. Yeah, so I I, I would totally reiterate that, and and I'd also say when when coming up with story for cartooning, whether it's like a superhero comic. Or whatever. Um, try not to be too derivative, like, yeah. and I think that's where we we start getting into, um, you know, using pre-existing symbols. It's like you you want to think about what story beats and images have been kind of played to death, and then if you're going to use stuff that's been played to death and, and been used a lot, um, at least when you go into it, you can go into it with intention. Right. Um, because there are some cliches that are, are cliches for a reason because they work. And um, I think sometimes some of the most um, poignant stories or poignant story moments aren't so much like the most original, but they're very authentic in their presentation or intentional in their right. presentation where, you know, um, you can pull on a cliche and turn it on its head and kind of create something unexpected. Or you can um, like find some kind of juxtaposition 
to put in there so that there's a higher concept that's a little further than the obvious. And I think that those things really enrich uh, the cliche or the symbol. So um, let me let me throw let me throw something out there. I'm curious on what you think about this. Yeah. How much do you think the quality of the execution comes into play? And I'll ask I'll ask that question this way: The Lion King is a fantastic movie, right? Really well executed. The story beats are right on. Like it, it's it's just beautiful. I mean, uh, tons of animators. Uh, harken back to the Lion King as the thing that caused them to want to get into animation. And if you look barely beneath the surface, and I mean just barely, it's literally just the story of Hamlet. That's that's yeah. all it is, you know? And they just took a Shakespearean play and they said one thing, what if it were lions? That yeah. was the only change they made, uh, you know, beyond that. And then, and then they, they tweaked some things. But the execution of it was done so well um, that it kind of overcame that cliche. It overcame that trope. And so yeah. I'm curious on what you think. Can you use a cliche, uh, a cliche thing, but you do it so well that it becomes original? Yeah. I mean, I think you can do that. I think, um, I think another case in point is like this weird thing that I was noticing on sitcoms. Um, I, I really loved Seinfeld. I, th- I think it's brilliant, and I think Curb Your Enthusiasm is brilliant. I think just the, the humor of that writer um, is, is pretty incredible. But um, but uh, I, and I also, for a little bit, really got into like How I Met Your Mother. And, um, and I was noticing these comedies, even the ones that were unexpected. I started like breaking it down and realizing that all of the characters in most comedies could be boiled down to like the character traits and the, the, the cast of peanuts by yeah. Charles Schultz. And I started seeing peanuts in like everything where I was like, <laughs> Oh my gosh, it's all the peanuts characters. And, and it's just basically like peanuts, like grown up as adults or peanut, like every single character was like straight out of Schultz's comic. And it was this weird thing of wondering where Peanuts was looking for those tropes and characters and stereotypes. And, and weirdly enough, they they pushed beyond that. But it is interesting, like, how many situational group stories that are group comedies harken back to, like, the, the Peanuts comics. And so, so to me, I think, um, you know, having a similar framework or even similar characters and stuff like that can be a really smart way to go. Is like those paths are kind of laid out for you. Um, that I think going with like a Shakespearean story arc is a good way to go if you're lost for story, or you're you're finding your story doesn't have a lot of structure. Um, and sometimes like mixing it and just kind of mixing it up and being like, well, what if that were, you know, like doing what um, what wasn't like uh, Lucas looking at like Seven Samurai. And yeah. Well, like, I mean, he had he he in outer space. Yeah, he lifted entire scenes from uh, from uh, Akira Kurosawa. So, so for those of you that don't know, Akira Kurosawa is one of the one of the best filmmakers that has ever lived, um, and used to do oil paintings of his um, of his storyboards. Like his storyboards were oil paintings, and it was he was an incredible person. But there is a there is a scene in um, Yojimbo, which means the bodyguard, right? There's this bodyguard where they are in a bar and uh, the samurai walks in 
and somebody basically says, "Hey, we don't, we don't, we don't serve your kind here." There's a scuffle. He cuts the guy's hand off while the band is playing in the background. It's it's the cantina scene. It is yeah. straight up a lift, right? But he, but he did it pretty well. Um, and and then Seven Samurai is 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 another one. And then and then there are even parts of uh, Rashomon um, that that kind of made it in. And then as far as like Jedi philosophy. Um, it was kind of like Buddhism light, you know, he basically just took like the Buddhist religion mixed in a little like Hollywood, uh, Hollywood liberal in there. And, and that's, that's what the Jedi believe, you know? And so like a lot of what Lucas did was, was like cliches from other things that were done really well. Yeah. And then he just changed it and put it in space and they call it a space opera because it follows the format of, of like an opera it yeah. just happens in space and then so somebody was like well let's let's coin that or whatever and so yeah I mean and, and you look at uh, you even look at um, um, Indiana Jones Indiana Jones is a straight lift from H. Ryder H. Ryder Haggard's um, Alan Quartermain right most people might know Alan Quartermain from A League of Extraordinary Gentlemen uh, but Alan Quartermain is the original uh, like uh, like gentleman scholar uh, kind of ruffian rogue type guy and he goes in and he you know he finds this lost world like H. Ryder Haggard like invented this lost world trope and I mean people like uh, you know like the Lord of the Rings has characters that are based on H. Ryder Haggard characters and like yeah. Tolkien and Tolstoy and those guys just straight up came out and said oh yeah that's that's you know like Galadriel is uh, Aisha and that's it and so it is yeah. interesting to see like a lot of the stuff that we take as like super original and groundbreaking was also based off of and a, a transformation of uh, you know older stuff and and I don't know where H. Ryder Haggard got it I mean who's to say he didn't like you know lift something from you know some Egyptian parable or something you know I mean but uh, yeah. I, I actually haven't looked into that. But it's interesting to see that you can kind of trace the roots of a lot of the popular culture that people say are like super original yeah. uh, back to other things that other people also said are super original, you know? Yeah. Like, I mean, Tolkien was like lifting whole parts from the ring cycle, too. I mean, it's like it, it's a weird um, it, it's it's a weird world of influence. And so I think the catch is, you know, to try to kind of make it like it ties back to one of the themes we always repeat, which is authenticity, being kind of authentic to um, the story that you want to tell to the things that you love and kind of trying to bring um, that authenticity to your work, because that by nature, um, you know, like just thinking about. Um, like when I'm, when I'm writing music with the band that I'm recording with tomorrow, it's like, I was really into post hardcore, but mixed in there, I was really into underground hip hop. I'm really into, um, indie rock. I like really, really fell in love with like the Pixies and pavement. And so like, there's these weird kind of pulls from all these different people that I really liked different kinds of guitar work from. And so when I'm when I'm noodling and, and and writing stuff, I'm sure subconsciously all of that stuff is like fueling what we're writing. And uh, there's there's not a point 
where I'm trying to make a song that sounds like this band. Right. Um, I'm trying to make a song that feels like this band, but sounds like this band, but like mixes with these other things and bringing all these different things that I like to it. And that's kind of what I think makes it more authentic than just being like a really bad kind of um, attempt at like copying a band you like or copying, you know, art you like. Um, and some of that does start by copying. I mean, we've we've talked about that a little bit, but I know when I was a kid, I used to stay up really late at night and I would take, um, I think, John Romita Jr. art from, from Spider-Man and I would look at his cover work and then I would like try to replicate the lines and like copy it exactly. And I would just spend hours doing that with comics that I liked. Um, when I was younger than that, I used to look at like Calvin and Hobbes and just kind of like draw Calvin and draw Hobbes, you know, um, even younger than that, I remember looking at Harold and the purple crayon and trying to repeat what Harold was doing later on only to find out that it turns out that, that guy was a cartoonist, a syndicated cartoonist. Um, the guy who created Harold and the purple crayon. Uh -huh. Um, but, but, what what's interesting is you kind of do start like that and hopefully don't keep like that. I think right. for, 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 because we're not copy machines. We're, we're artists. Right. And I, and think, I think, people, I think anytime you, you strive to be that, uh, yeah. you and I were talking about Sean Gordon Murphy before we went live. He, he's got an interesting story that he tells. And I, I, I don't know if you've listened to this episode or not, but uh, where he talks about, how he was trying to do other things, right? He has a, I don't know how you describe his style, but it's, it's an exceptionally energetic inking line. Um, yeah. Almost, almost messy, um, yeah. you know, and, and uh, but, but super controlled. And it, it's, it's fascinating. I've got a couple of pieces of his, you can see right there. There's a few of them. Um, but he, uh, he was talking, and I can't remember who he was talking about, but he was working on American Vampire and he kept getting notes back from his editor, you know, hey, make this more like so-and-so. You know, could you clean this up and make it more like so-and-so? Uh, and at one point in time, he just basically swore at her and said, I'm not effing so-and-so, you know? And uh, and that was when his art kind of, when he claims that his art kind of like was unshackled and he was able to kind of be himself as an artist yeah. uh, was when he stopped attempting to try to be like somebody else. And it's an interesting it's an interesting thing because in in copying other people's work, um, you shouldn't do that professionally. And I don't even I'm, I'm not even sure that you should share that publicly. Uh, but you do gain a certain set of skills. You you gain a feeling in your hand. Um, and then once you leave that behind and you allow yourself to be yourself, uh, you, you you retain those abilities, but you approach them in a different way. And I remember I have always been very impressed with the the painterly style that a lot of digital artists are able to get. Yeah. Um, you know, if you look at like Saga or Tale of Sand or you know like those type of things where you know it's it's you don't see the incline. Um, yeah. You know, and and I had tried to do that for years, and I in my masters I was still trying to do that. And I remember um, this one professor. Uh, he just said, he said, "Hey, I've seen countless students uh, waste themselves away trying to be something that they're not." 
you know, and, and, and in essence, what he was trying to say is you're not going to you're not going to be that. That's not who you are. And he said, instead of trying to to go against the grain, um, you should just accept the artist that you are and be the best version of that. And yeah. actually, that was the first time because I was kind of because um, I was a little bit in a fine art world. I was a little bit in a, you know, liberal arts academy, that type of thing. And and um, I, don't, I don't know if ashamed is ashamed is too strong, but I was a little bit embarrassed of um, of kind of an inking style where everybody described my style as like a comic book style. Yeah. Um, not that I was embarrassed of comic books or anything, but I really wanted to be able to produce uh, more of a painterly style. But I don't know how to paint. I've never known how to paint. And uh, and as soon as he was like, your portfolio looks like it was done by five different people. Poorly. Like, you know, and uh, and he said, so like, pick what you gravitate to naturally. And just get really good at that. And I'm not kidding. Like, within a week, I had leveled up like four levels once yeah. I accepted like who I was. But I don't think any of that effort was lost because I'm able to bring a lot of what I learned in that struggle and trying to copy and yeah. trying to push and trying to do that, um, that, that now I, I feel like I'm, I'm inking at a level that, you know, is, is pretty decent compared to, you know, the amount of time that I've spent doing it. And, and yeah. I think a lot of that is because I had a, a photography background and a videography background and a graphic design background. And then for a year or two, I tried really hard to, to paint and it just didn't, ever take and then when I finally hit the inks like I always should have uh, I was able to kind of bring all that with me uh, and it's kind of yeah. an interesting thing and so I and I I think I have somewhat of an original style style is kind of a weird thing um, but there's a lot of odd influences that you wouldn't think would be influences in there like yeah. like Dr. Seuss and you know a lot of like super technical you know people and you know you put that alongside like uh, like Sergio Tapi and, and, and Murphy and and Crystal and all those guys, and it's like a weird mixed bag, but you're yeah. able to kind of just push into into be being your own. It's interesting. Yeah, and I think um, I I would agree with that, and it's funny because I relate to that a lot. Because I when I was in grad school, um, I, I and I think this might be just been the time that I was in there, but like um, there was a hesitance to kind of support anybody doing comics in the first place. And uh, and so I kept getting pushed in these different directions by my committee, and like one of the directions was painting, and it's funny because when I was painting, I I, I had like, you know, some of the the top painter painting teachers at the school who were like trying to recruit me into their department because they were like, you are a painter. And I was like, yeah, but I'm not. Like, I, I, <laughs> and the weird thing is, I do love painting. Like, I enjoy it. Yeah. But I don't. Something didn't click, and I had a very similar moment where I'd been pushed in so many directions, and I finally just kind of broke down and was like, "Look, I want to make black and white auto bio comics. Like, I don't want to make color comics. I do color stuff all the time professionally. I don't know why I'm being pushed in that direction of color." I don't know why I'm being pushed in the direction of paint because I really like line. Um, and, and what's funny was I, I kind of think a lot of that pushing might have had intention behind it because um, I do think part of what you do as, as an undergraduate is you're kind of like a sponge and you're absorbing as much as you possibly can. But as a graduate student, 
at that point you're no longer really a sponge you're supposed to be kind of like like doing the thing you should do you yeah, know right and um and i and i kind of think that might have been a method of my committee at the time to kind of get you where your heart wants you to be um because that's what you should be doing in in, in graduate school because you know it's like it's, it's one of the few times in life where you're going to get an opportunity to just kind of work on whatever yeah and so um I, I I think that was really beneficial because ever since then, like the comics I've been making are the comics I've wanted to make. And I feel like prior to that, most of what I was making, even the comics I was making, I was like making excuses for them not to be the thing that I felt like I should be making. Yeah. But along the way you absorb all these different things and, and weirdly enough, it, it becomes advantageous, you know, like at my job, it's really helpful that I can be a chameleon and I can kind of work in any style. So that's super helpful. Um, and that's actually something I even bring into my own work. That's why I have like two different styles in the comic I'm working on. The one I'm doing for this anthology might be a totally different style, you know? Yeah. Um, but it's but it's interesting that like that amalgamation of different styles and different interests and different loves, like that all kind of comes out as, as like something that's more authentic. And I think it starts happening when you finally stop thinking you have a style or caring if you have a style yeah. and then you just kind of end up with a style. Cause I do know as a student, I did make like, especially in undergrad, I made a lot of mistakes that I called style <laughs> and were just terrible drawing habits. Yeah. And you know, I would justify and I, as a teacher, I saw students do this too, like justify really bad drawing by being like, that's just my style. That's man. my style. You know, it's yeah. all subjective and you're like, no, like objectively, like <laughs> that's wrong. <laughs> yeah. And, um, but what's once, neat is once, like, once you finish a few book, thousand pages, then you can claim it's your style. But right now it's just, you're not good at it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's the thing about style. Like you kind of arrive at it, whether you like it or not. And yeah. I think, um, very similarly, like when you start writing stuff and you start making art and you try to push beyond kind of the expected, um, you, you, you'll find yourself there, but this is kind of rambly, but I, but I do feel like it's a tough topic. Um, when it, when, when it's talking about kind of trying to go outside of cliches, but yeah. if you are going to delve into cliches, I do think be aware of the cliche, use it to your advantage. You know, I, I think, I think, I think there's, there's two big good rules of thumb. If, if we want to end on, on some good rules of thumb when it comes to symbolism, one is the more general the symbol is, uh, the the more cliche and useless it's going to be. Uh, the the other is um, the more unaware of it you are, um, the more it's going to come off as cliche. And so, if, if you can get a, a very granular set of symbols, yeah. um, you know that can be used really really well. And if you are aware that you are making a choice. And it's not a choice because you can't think of anything else, but it's a choice because you have multiple options that you've come up with and you've decided that that is the best way for the, the mood, the tone, uh, the story calls for it, um, you know, and, and it communicates clearly, um, then that can be, that can be, that can be used really effectively. But if you're not, if you're not aware that it's cliche because you don't know, it's not a tool you're using. It's something that you're defaulting to. And if it's super general, um, and, and, and it's, it's, it's used 
all the time and you're not aware of it, you're, you're probably just grooved right into that into that trope and you, and you have no idea what's going on. And so I, I think like anything else, um, I would always shoot for originality. Um, but if you have, uh, it's kind of like if you know the rules, then you can know when to break them. Um, and so if you're aware of it, you can say, I realize that this is cliche, but I'm doing it here for the following reasons. And if that's honest and it's not a justification, then that's usually going to serve the story well. Yeah. And, and sometimes like the cliches themselves can be great subject matter. I I did a, a shirt design that went viral years ago called the, the league of cliche, evil supervillains. And, uh, it's still in print on threadless and, uh, that thing made me a, a decent amount of money. And it was literally just a day where I was like, there are all these cliche supervillains. They show up across genres. <laughs> and uh, I wonder if I could list them out. Has anyone done that? And I yeah. looked it up and nobody had done it. And I was like, I'm going to do it as a floating head thing. Cause like all vintage comics had floating heads on the cover in my, my kid era. And, and it worked. Um, and that was like a mix of like, I was aware of the cliches. I tried to set it up in the most kind of cliche way. And, uh, and, and it, you know, it worked because I was aware of them. And like, so once again, don't, don't, don't avoid the cliche, embrace the cliche. And, and, uh, and if you can, like, you know, nobody's riffed on it, maybe make a joke about it. Yeah. You know, make a design. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. So there's a there's a non-answer for everybody. It's as <laughs> non-answer as I think we could get. Uh, if you want to check out my stuff. Oh, anybody? I don't have the chat pulled up. Anybody saying anything in the chat? Uh, Tim just said hi. Hi, Tim. Thanks for joining us. Hey, everybody in the chat. Um, and if you want to be in the chat and you're watching this later, um, then get on uh, get on YouTube. You can check us out at coreykerr.com slash 48HR. You can always see what we're doing over there and that'll have links to Josh's YouTube channel and my YouTube channel. If you want to check out my stuff, you can go to CoreyKerr.com. And if you want to check out Josh's stuff, you can go to QuarterlyStories.com and you can uh, call us out on whether we're being cliche or not. And uh, I'm sure we'd love to hear that in the comments. So we'll see you guys in a couple days. We are out. Bye.